are listening to Claim Closure, the premier audio resource for workers' compensation claims in North Carolina. Welcome back, everyone, to the latest episode of Claim Closure. I am your host, Brian Grozier, partner over at Midkiff Muncie and Ross, practicing out of Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the inaugural episode for the forms, so we are going to go over all of the Industrial Commission forms one by one that you would utilize in a case and go into an in-depth discussion as to how to utilize them and the implications of filling one out. And in theory, with the Industrial Commission, if they were to review a file and just look at the forms, they should be able to know everything that's gone on in the file from the beginning to the end just by looking at the forms. And I know the forms in North Carolina are different uh, than the forms you see in other states. It's a question that I get a lot from safety managers or HR folks at employers when they're trying to fill out the initial forms. I get the same questions from uh, adjusters, whether they're seasoned adjusters that have been around for 20 years and handling multiple states, or they're brand new to North Carolina and they've never seen a form before. You know, the same questions come up from time to time. And so this is an opportunity to go into those forms and answer those questions that you may have and go into a little bit more depth about them too, to answer questions that you didn't even know you had regarding these forms because they definitely can shape a case and they can dictate how a case is handled by the attorney who ends up getting the file uh, later on or by the commission or the deputy commissioner or the full commission who looks at a file and makes a determination based off of what the forms said that were filed many, many months before. So vitally important to know what you're doing with these forms and the implications from them. So that's why we're doing this. And the first form that we deal with is a Form 19. And that in North Carolina is the employer's report of an injury to the Industrial Commission. Now, these forms can all be found on the IC website. That would be ic.nc.gov. That is the website for the Industrial Commission here in, in North Carolina. If you go to that website and you go under uh, the claims portion of it up at the top, you can see there is a, uh, and it's a carrier's portion of it, a carrier's tab. You can see that there's a claims forms underneath that tab. If you just click on that, that'll pull up all of the forms that we're going to be discussing here coming up on these upcoming episodes. And the Form 19 uh, is further down the page under Employer Forms, and it's labeled as Employer's Report of Employee's Injury or Occupational Disease to the Industrial Commission. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to file it unless certain circumstances arise, all right? And so the two triggers for filing a Form 19 would be, one, the employee misses more than one day of work due to the injury, okay? Or two, you have spent $4,000 or more on medicals. If neither of those have happened, we don't have to worry about any of the things I'm going to discuss here in the upcoming episodes because you never have to file the Form 19 in the first place, all right? So if a claimant ends up you know, getting a laceration to his thumb and he goes to urgent care and he gets it taped up and you foot a bill of $1,000 or whatever it is at urgent care and they come back to work the next day, you don't have to file a Form 19. The Industrial Commission doesn't need to know about the 
incident because it never met the threshold of reporting to the Industrial Commission. You have to meet those two triggers, one or the other, right? It doesn't have to be both. It just needs to be one. So if the employee misses more than one day of work or you have spent $4,000 or more on medicals, that's what triggers the Form 19. And everything in North Carolina, Industrial Commission world, is electronic, okay? So you don't mail the form into the Industrial Commission. You do an EDI filing, and you have to uh, be registered for that and have a username and be able to file these forms with the Industrial Commission that way. If you have questions about that, contact the Industrial Commission. You can contact the clerk. You can contact the Executive Secretary's office. Somebody's going to point you in the right direction as to how to accomplish that end. But most of you uh, have access to that already, right? And you're familiar with EDI filing. North Carolina's been doing that for several years now. Everything's done online, and hopefully at some point here in the near future, they will have a database set up that you can actually pull the file uh, from the online service and see all of the forms that have been filed. That's going to be important in a couple episodes coming up in terms of avoiding sanctions, in terms of which forms you filed and when. So don't have to worry about that yet on the Form 19, but you do have to file it via EDI. And at the same time, and you will notice this on the form, and it's in bold, all right? It says to the employer, a copy of this Form 19 accompanied by a blank Form 18 must be given to the employee. It does not satisfy the employee's obligation to file a claim. The filing of this report is required by law. So not only do you as the employer or as the insurance carrier need to file this Form 19 once either of those two triggers that I mentioned are met, and you do so via EDI filing, but you also have to give a blank Form 18, which is the employee's notice of an injury, uh, to the employee. All right? And so this is a two-step process. You file the Form 19, and you give the Form 18 to the employee. Now, it's up to them to file it, but it's up to you to give it to them. You can't just file the 19 and wash your hands of the case and be done with it. You have to give the employee a Form 18. Now, what does that mean in terms of when you are actually filing the Form 19, what kind of triggers that for you, all right? Not just that they missed more than one day of work or spent $4,000 or more on medicals, but what is it that actually triggers the idea of, oh gosh, I need to file a Form 19, all right? The employee has to report to you. Now, granted, take a caveat on this. If you see the employee slip, if you, the supervisor or owner, operator, or what have you, see the claimant on the floor after they tripped over a wire or after they slipped on some water and fell down and they're calling for help or whatever, that's called actual notice. All right. So you have actual notice of a work injury at that point. All right. Most times that doesn't happen, though. Most times these injuries occur outside of the purview or outside of the area where a supervisor may be or a safety manager may be or the owner may be, whoever it is that the employees need to report the injury to. Most often these injuries occur outside of their view. Okay, so it comes to the employee to have to come to you as the safety manager, as the supervisor, as the uh, owner-operator to report what happened, all right? And why is this important? Under NC General Statute 9722, the employee has an obligation to report the work injury to the employer and give timely notice. Now, I'll read the statute to you so you know exactly what it says. 
9722, notice of an accident to the employer. Every injured employee or his representative shall immediately, on the occurrence of an accident or as soon thereafter as practical, give or cause to be given to the employer a written notice of the accident. And the employee shall not be entitled to physician's fees nor any compensation which may have accrued under the terms of this article prior to giving of such notice unless it can be shown that the employer had knowledge of the accident or that the party required to give such notice had been prevented from doing so by reason of physical or mental incapacity or the fraud or the deceit of some third party. But no compensation shall be payable unless such written notice is given within 30 days after the occurrence of the accident or death, unless reasonable excuse is provided. So that's a lot of legal jargon. What does it mean? The employee, if they have an accident and there's no actual notice, meaning that you as the employer, in terms of the supervisor, the safety manager, whoever they need to report the injury to, didn't have actual notice of it, the employee has to immediately provide that notice to the employer. All right. And the statute says written notice, you know, provide written notice. Hey, I fell Thursday, which was, let's just say yesterday, Thursday, uh, injured my right arm. And this is where you see these incident reports come up, right? They, 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 you, most employers have some sort of protocol when it comes to a work injury where you fill out incident reports. And this is where that would come into play. So they report the injury, they end up filling out some sort of a report, you've got some sort of written documentation of an injury occurring. Now the statute does allow for a period of time for that reporting to occur, okay? So you heard me say 30 days, that's kind of, that's the threshold basically, right? It allows for the instance where somebody injures their back and tweaks it, you know, lifting something. And we'll talk about that in a later episode as to what constitutes as an accident versus a specific traumatic incident. But for the purposes of this episode, they lift up an object and they tweak their back and they feel like they can work through it and it's not a big deal. And then the next morning they wake up and they're a little stiff and they still feel like they can work through it, but it just keeps getting worse. And so two weeks later, it gets to the point that they just can't function anymore. And so then they go to the safety manager or the owner or the supervisor and say, Hey, you know, Joe, I just, I tweaked my back to you two weeks ago. It's still bothering me. I thought it would go away. It's not, I need to go to urgent care. Now, does that raise a red flag for you as the employer? Absolutely. It does. Because now you're being told about a work injury two weeks after it allegedly occurred. Oftentimes you don't have the information as to a uh, co-worker who may have seen it. They may not have remembered it two weeks later, three weeks later. They, they may have been even working with them but didn't notice anything because maybe the claimant never said anything. doesn't mean it didn't happen, but maybe the claimant just didn't say anything or didn't react initially when it happened. And also a lot of uh, stores have um, surveillance videos, right, that are on and they're on a loop. And sometimes they're on a 30-day loop. Sometimes they're on a seven-day loop. Sometimes they're even on a 24-hour loop, right? And if something's not reported to you right away and you don't have the opportunity to review the surveillance footage, you don't have any way to verify the allegation that's being made. So it is a red flag, obviously, if they report late a work injury. But under the statute, they are at least allowed to report that work injury within a 30-day period after it occurs. It doesn't mean that they are barred from reporting it 
from a statutory standpoint that they would be if they reported it 60 days later or 90 days later, subject to a couple caveats. But you just don't have that defense uh, at your disposal. That doesn't mean that you don't have other defenses at your disposal because of the red flags that were raised uh, by the late reporting. But my point is this. On the form itself, when we look at the form, there is a portion of the form. It's number seven under the form. It says, date you or the supervisor first knew of the injury. This is what I'm talking about in terms of this notice defense that exists on 9722, because a lot of times the employer will fill out this form first, right? The employer, uh, whether it's the HR, the safety manager, whoever it is, is filling out this report. They might even do it handwritten, and then they send it into the carrier. And then the carrier types it up, makes it look all nice, and then files it via EDI uh, with the Industrial Commission. So if you are the employer and you're listening to this episode, pay attention here. Even if you're the adjuster and you're filling out this portion, pay attention here. On that form where it says, date you or the supervisor first knew of the injury, this is the opportunity, if it exists, to raise that 9722 defense. You want to put in there when you were first aware that the injury occurred, not when the injury occurred, because that sometimes is what happens, right? The employer ends up filling out the date of injury, which is number three, and let's just say it's November 6th, 2022, and then they didn't know about it until... December 20th of 2022. But under number seven, they put November 6th of 2022 because they don't think it's a big deal, right? Well, supervisor first knew about it then. Well, then what happens when you're at the Industrial Commission trying to make an argument of a failure to timely report and they look at the form that was filled out by the employer and it says November 6th, 2022 is the date that the supervisor first knew of the injury, which just so happens to be the day of the injury right? You're going to run into some credibility issues there. So make sure that on number seven, that you actually put in there when it was that you as the employer first knew that this work injury occurred. That's the reason for it. 9722. All right. Everything else is fairly self-explanatory. There's a lot of things to put in there, but just try and fill out as much as you can. Uh, the wages per hour and everything else, that's not, and there, there's under number 10 and number 11, it talks about wages. That's not going to be determinative of an average weekly wage and, and compensation rate. And we'll talk about how you determine average weekly wages and compensation rates on a later episode, but that's not going to be determinative of it. It's just an estimate. So if they're making you know, $14 an hour, just put $14 an hour on there. If they're working 40 hours a week, do whatever 14 times 40 is and put it on there. It's not going to be an absolute determination of what their average weekly wage is because that depends on how many days they're working. Did they take days off? Did they go on vacation? Did they work overtime? All those things factor in as to calculating an average weekly wage. But feel free to just put that information in there so there's an idea of what this person is making. All right. And then under number 12, where it just says, describe fully how the injury occurred and what the employee was doing when injured. Here's your chance to be descriptive. All right. Sometimes people say fell, you know, and that's it. Right. And that doesn't give us much information as to what happened. This is the initial report of injury. This is vitally important. There's, vi there's certain documents in a worker's compensation claim that are very determinative in terms of the validity of what is being said later on at a hearing. Those are the initial forms. What was said on those initial forms in terms of what was reported on those Form 19s and the Form 18s? 
what was said in that initial medical record, whether it was in the emergency room note or the urgent care note or the family care, uh, family physician, primary care note. What is the employee saying to their doctor before anything happened, before any litigation, before any thoughts about, oh, this is a workers' compensation claim and I need to say X, Y, and Z, what was initially said, right? This is one of those forms. This is one of those documents that you look at initially and say, all right, what was reported? You know, this is very timely. It's temporal. It happened right around the time of the incident, maybe within an hour of the incident. What is being reported? So be descriptive under number 12 in terms of describe fully as to what happened and what was injured, right? So don't just say slip and fall. You know, say slip and fell on water in the break room and complained of right knee pain, all right? Not just right leg pain. If they're complaining about the right knee, say specifically what they're complaining about, the right knee. Um, why is that important? Because later on, when we talk about a Form 60 or a Form 63, describing the body part that you are actually accepting matters, right? And so let's start from the very beginning as to what is being complained of because what you see is an evolution over time of symptoms and body parts, right? What became initially or what was initially a right knee injury all of a sudden now becomes a right ankle injury or a right foot injury or a right hip injury or a low back injury. You know, there's a progression of symptoms over time that happens in these cases. And I think it's important on these form 19s to be as descriptive as possible as to what is initially being reported. Now, after that, you're looking at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. They're talking about hours. When do they return? If so, at what wages? What occupation? Salary continued? Was the employee treated by a physician? Answer those if you can. You know, if it's inapplicable, just put inapplicable or NA on it. Um, But that's what you're looking for. That's what you're looking to uh, uh, fill out on any of these forms is as much information as you possibly can and as descriptive as you possibly can be. I know they're a pain in the butt sometimes to fill out, but it's going to help you in the long run the more detailed that you are. In fatal cases, which happens under 19 on that form, not only do you fill out this form 19, but you also have to submit a form 29. And we'll talk about that in a later episode when we're talking about forms for a death case. Um, but just note that if it is a death case, you also have to fill out a form 29. Now you also need to fill out the employer name and who it's signed by. It helps me as the attorney to know who filled this out, right? Because when I get the file six months, nine months, even a year after the incident occurred, and now it's going into litigation or there's some sort of issue that has arisen that requires the referral. I like to know who filled the form out. Uh, so that I can talk to that person because that person is in all likelihood going to have details and know exactly what happened uh, at the time of the injury or at least at the time of the reporting of the injury. And so don't just fill out the company name under uh, employer name and everything like that. Fill out who is actually filling the report and whether it's this human resources representative or a supervisor or a safety manager. That way I can contact you once I get the referral to find out what you know about the case. And it's important to you as an adjuster, if you receive similar information, to reach out to that person, right, and find out what they know about it. Because there are many times that I get a file and I'm talking to the employer, which I usually do in an initial evaluation. I talk to the employer to find out their perspective of a case. And they haven't talked to the adjuster, at least substantively, at all about the case, right? 
And you as the adjuster, you're almost like a reporter, like a journalist when you first get a file. You need to be inquisitive with the employer, the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, the how. Uh, find out all that information and put that into your claim notes because you want to be fully investigating the file upon your referral just like I'm fully investigating the file upon my referral. And it helps when you know who's filling out these forms. So if you are the employer, sign it and note who you are on there so that the adjuster and the attorney later on knows who to talk to. All right. The final portion there, it's an ocean. I actually rarely see this filled out, but uh, it does matter because OSHA does play a role in terms of the benefits and everything. So if you are filling out OSHA 301 information and you're doing that, you're filing a claim with OSHA based off of the accident, be sure to put that information in there as well, just so that we've got the heads up that this is an OSHA case as well. It can play a role in terms of the benefits that are being received. If it is an OSHA violation, there can be an increase in the benefits that are being received under the statute. And so we need to know that ahead of time. I don't really want to find that out uh, a year or two into the case and then all of a sudden have to pay back the claimant 10% of what we already pay, have paid him or her. So if it is an OSHA violation and you've already kind of filled out those logs and it's a 301 scenario, be sure to fill out that information and put it on the Form 19. It just gives the Industrial Commission and uh, the employer or the uh, employer's attorney and carrier an opportunity to have a little bit of a head up, heads up there. So, uh, But otherwise, pretty straightforward form. Um, not a lot of implications other than what I've already talked about in terms of you know, issues that may arise later, but vitally important uh, on these forms is to fill them out as detailed as possible, right? And that goes for all of these forms that we're going to discuss. It just makes the job of the adjuster and it makes the job of the attorney, and frankly, it makes the job of the deputy commissioner, if they're going to be hearing the case, that much easier the more detailed that these forms are, okay? So as a review on these Form 19s, you do not have to file one unless there's been more than one day of missed work by the employer or by the employee, or you've spent $4,000 or more on medicals. If you do file one, it needs to be via EDI, all right? And at the same time, you have to give the Form 18 to the employee. Note when the employee reported it to you. If they say they got injured on November 6th of 2022, and they're showing up for the first time to you on December 20th of 2022, Note that on the Form 19, but also make sure that the adjuster knows about when this was reported and that it was late and that you had no idea about it, et cetera, et cetera, because it can raise a 97-22 failure to timely provide notice report. So you've got that as a defense. And then that's playing a role in terms of how you fill it out, right? So again, number seven, that date the supervisor first knew, that's probably one of the more important items on this Form 19 is you fill that portion out. Average weekly wage portion, fill it out to the best of your knowledge. Number 12 and 13, in terms of describing the injury and how it happened and what was injured, be as descriptive as possible. And then finally, when you sign the form, notify who you are. Right? Don't just put the employer's name on there. Put your name on there if you're filling it out so that the adjuster and uh, the attorney later on can know who to contact when they are doing their initial investigation of the file. 
Next episode, we will be discussing the Form 18, which is the form that you give to the employee after you file this Form 19, and how to respond once you receive one from a claimant. Until then, I'm Brian Grozier, and this has been Claim Closure.